Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Traffic law enforcement became a rallying point during nine days of student protests in Bangladesh. Teenagers started enforcing laws at makeshift checkpoints and grassroots efforts that started two weeks ago. But sharp clashes and accusations have led to a full-blown crisis. The government's trying to quell the violence by cutting internet services to cripple social media and censoring both Bangladeshi and international media. Pro-government student groups are being accused of attacking protesters. We all are feeling threatened here. We wanted a peaceful protest. We don't want any trouble occurring around here. Yet rubber bullets were shot on our brothers at Murpur neighborhood. They were dispersed. We don't want all this. That clip was from Al Jazeera. Let's reflect on what the affair tells us about where Bangladesh is at these days. Vidi Doshi is the India correspondent for the Washington Post, and she's been covering the situation in Bangladesh. Thanks for joining us, Vidi. Hi, thanks. Um, thanks to, for having me. Now, tell me a little bit, uh, for people who haven't caught up with this, this got started uh, a couple weeks ago, and there was an incident, and, and the students reacted. Uh, what happened? So um, last month, um, two students were, uh, you know, had an ac- a road accident. They were killed by a speeding bus. Um, you know, that's actually a very common event in a country like Bangladesh. But um, this was one of those kind of stories that just grabbed the ad- imagination of, um, you know, tens of thousands of Bangladeshi students. And then over the past two weeks, they've been out on the streets um, protesting, protesting. Um, you know, as you said, um, basically doing the jobs of traffic cops. You know, they've been out enforcing road rules, checking driver's license, uh, licenses, um, uh, and kind of highlighting the, the government's shortcomings in, in, you know, in enforcing traffic rules. Um, and, and the whole, you know, the whole uh, uh, law enforcement in Bangladesh is very, you know, kind of, I mean, the, tra- the, the the roads in Bangladesh can be completely choked with cars. Um, there's a lot of accidents. So this was really a moment of um, a grassroots movement where people kind of took control and said, um, enough is enough. Um, it's time to start enforcing. Well, why did the movement get so ugly? I mean, I understand that a couple of government ministers were stopped and didn't have their licenses, and the, the government got embarrassed about this, that the children were mm-hmm. out there doing their jobs for them. But uh, why? how does it get so ugly? Yeah, well, I mean, you, you can never really predict why um, uh, the accident of two students out of so many thousand um, suddenly kind of, um, you know, galvanizes this huge movement but really what the student what the student protest was about was um you know people just saying that the government can't get away away with this sort of thing anymore it needs to start um you know pulling its weight and it needs to start enforcing things so bangladesh has been um you know it's a very poor country it has been rising steadily um uh its economy has been growing and um you know, ever since it, it gained independence from Pakistan in 1971, um, it, it, politics has kind of centered around 
um, you know, in in party politics, um, you know, a lot of kind of imagery about the the liberation war, um, policy and enforcement, and kind of making Bangladesh a country that's kind of livable has kind of almost been neglected in a huge way. And and I think this generation of citizens is saying for the first time, you know, you need to start doing this. It sounds like the party in power, the Awami League, got into accusing the protesters of being. Uh, from the opposition, and then it got political, and there's this bitter rivalry between the Awami League that's in power now and the Bangladesh National Party, and it just seems to keep getting worse over the years. Uh, and that fed into this uh, this protest? Yeah, so this tends to happen in this part of the world. Anytime a lot of people get angry about something, one party or another co-ops the movement um, and tries to make it all about them. Um, In this case, you know, for many, many days, this was just a genuine grassroots student protest. Um, And then, um, you know, things started getting violent. People started throwing around accusations that the the opposition, um, the Bangladesh Nationalist Party, was kind of inciting them. And students kind of really spoke out against that. You know, they, they came out holding signs saying, um, this we have not been instigated. Um, this this is all us, and um, and of course the um, the Awami League has had a very heavy handed approach, which has been very criticised, um, especially by the U.S. embassy. Um, you know they they arrested a photographer who kind of spoke out against uh, the government. Um, the the policemen kind of came out and used um, tear gas and rubber bullets at at school children, which is astonishing. So. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it became politicized, but I think, you know, it, it really wasn't to start out with. I'm talking with Vidi Doshi, India correspondent for The Washington Post, and we're talking about what's been happening in Bangladesh the last couple of weeks with uh, student protests over traffic law enforcement, uh, bringing the country to international prominence. Uh, you know, the the Awami League, and you mentioned there that the, the U.S. ambassador has gotten involved in this and uh, spoke out about this and has been talking about the Awami League getting more uh, authoritarian over over time. Um, wh- what is going on with the Awami League? Why, what's, what's wrong with them these days? Well, uh, it's not necessarily them. I mean, this is a character of... Bangladeshi politics, um, you know, um, when the Bangladeshi Nationalist Party was in power, they were also accused of doing all sorts of things and arresting people. And um, the, uh, but this, uh, you know, the Awami League has has kind of, uh, especially in recent months, become or come under fire for being exceptionally um, so, so, you know, for instance, um, a few months ago, they launched a big um, war on drugs and um, policemen started, um, you know, shooting down a whole bunch of accused drug dealers. Um, the Bangladeshi Nationalist Party is saying that, you know, that whole war on drugs was basically used to target opposition members and people who were kind of speaking out um, against um, against the party. Um, you know, how much truth there is in that needs to be investigated, really. Um, but but there has been definitely a slide into authoritarianism, and Marcia Bernicat, the U.S. ambassador, has been quite vocal about that um, uh, in elections, in in city elections uh, a few months ago. Um, you know there was ballot stuffing and um, you know intimidation attempts. Um, so so she's spoken out about that, and and yeah, that that is starting to happen. Um, the Bangladeshi Nationalist Party's leader is in jail right now. So. And the Awami League put the Bangladesh Nationalist Party leader in that, in jail. 
Right. Right. Exactly. Uh, you know, that, that stands in such stark contrast to the, um, I don't know, the pure motives of the student movement. It sounds like Bangladesh, uh, I mean, they encourage education, they want people to practice democracy, and, and uh, on a youth level, it's working. And then at the top, it's not working. Yeah, um, and, uh, you know, that is kind of a a feature of, again, South Asian politics that, um, you know, the, the kind of the messy bickering about who gets to be in power is quite far divorced from policy making and law enforcement and those things are almost done by um, are kind of separate from each other in many ways um, and one doesn't necessarily always reflect the other um, yeah you know I agree <laughs> um, the Awamili came out and did did make some changes and um they instituted the, the death penalty for some um, traffic violations. What, what, what happened there? They, they promised to. They haven't yet. Um, but what they have done is they have uh, made laws tougher. Um, they've, you know, they've raised the, the maximum penalty from three to five years. Um, they've, um, they've increased fines. Um, they had you know, this traffic week. Um, where policemen actually were enforcing road rules. Um, but whether that's going to lead to institutional change and whether that's going to lead to kind of big, um, bigger change, as these students are asking for, you know, that's another question. Was that a um, legitimate reaction to make all the penalties tougher? Did they need to be tougher or did they just need to start enforcing the laws that were on the books? Uh, well, it <laughs> depends who you ask. Um, yeah, I think, um, it, you know, it, you always want to start with enforcing the laws that you already have. Um, it doesn't really make sense to have tough laws if nobody is putting them into practice. And if, um, you know, a rich kid's, uh, a rich politician's son can get away with, get away with it. Um, yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's a mixture. People would say that um, uh, the, the penalties do need to be enforced better. And I think, um, I think that is the feeling um, that these students students were trying to communicate. Did free speech take a hit in this crisis? I know that there was a very prominent photojournalist who spoke out and was promptly detained. Uh, where did that uh, get get in the middle here? Yeah, so Shahid Alam, who is the photographer that you're talking about, he, um, he did a TV interview and he said, you know, the, the police used brute force, for his words, against um, these uh, these students because they'd started, um, you know, using rubber bullets in the streets. And um, they arrested him, and that's pretty astonishing. The U.S. ambassador, and I mean, you cannot link this necessarily to, um, you know, how the embassy was speaking out against the protests, but her car was attacked right after... Um, well, her car was attacked um, in, in Dhaka, um, and, you know, she's kind of a known, kind of a pretty, become a pretty vocal cr critic of the Awami League. Um, so, I, I, and you can't necessarily, there's no evidence yet to link that. Um, but, you know, people who um, speak out against the government are facing intimidation. So that, describe more what happened to the U.S. ambassador's car and how it got attacked. So it was a Saturday night. She'd been to a, um, a dinner party hosted by, um, you know, this prominent social activist. Um, she'd gone out um, and on her way kind of out, her motorcade was attacked um, by armed men on motorcycles. Um, the U.S. Embassy put out a statement saying 
distancing essentially um, the attack from the student protesters. So they said it wasn't the students. You know, we don't want to confuse people and and make them believe that the students were being violent or forceful in any way. Um, and the suggestion very much um, was that um, she, you know, she, that you know these the students weren't involved. Um, and, and while we don't know who attacked the U.S. ambassador, I'm sure a lot of people have reasons to attack her. Um, what we do know is that she has been increasingly um, kind of vocal against the Bangladeshi government. And, um, you know, they've, they've even accused her of being a um, mouthpiece for the opposition party. Do armed people on scooters normally attack people who are critics of the government in Bangladesh? Is that not so out of the question, or was this a really unusual situation? Uh, not the U.S. ambassador. <laughs> you know, she's usually shielded from, and not in this type of neighborhood. Um, she's usually kind of quite shielded from this type of thing. Um, you know, there is violence in the streets in Bangladesh, but it's not. Um, it's it's not like. Um, it's not as frequent um, as to, you know, where in that sort of neighborhood where it would happen. Um, it's it's unusual. It's definitely unusual. Well, do you expect to be covering more protests of this nature in Bangladesh anytime soon? Well, uh, I can't say. <laughs> You'd have to ask the students of Bangladesh what their plans are. But, you know, Bangladesh is going to have elections Um in December, and um, I guess, I mean, I, while it's a kind of, the previous elections were fought um, where the opposition party basically boycotted them, and there was huge criticism that it wasn't really a fair election at all. Um, but essentially, these elections are an opportunity for people to start bringing up problems that they're having with the government of Bangladesh, and so it would not surprise me if, um, you know, they did... Um, Galvanize some level of of protest and some level of kind of anti-government, but of course they have seen how heavy-handed the government can be when they do speak out. So, Vidi Doshi is the India correspondent for the Washington Post. She covers Bangladesh. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the protests, the student protests in Bangladesh that were sparked by uh, traffic law enforcement issues. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks very much. Coming up. Coming up in a few minutes, we'll be talking about our series Puerto Reconstruction and find out how Congress wants to keep Puerto Rico safe for fossil fuels. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Mondays on Worldview through hurricane season, we have a regular feature called Puerto Reconstruction, where we follow the efforts to rebuild Puerto Rico. We're going to do that right now. We're going to spend a few minutes on Puerto Rico's energy future. The House Natural Resources Committee met recently to discuss the Puerto Rican energy future with officials from the Department of Energy, and Kate Aronoff wrote about it in The Intercept in an article with the Onion-like title, House Republicans Deeply Confused About 
why Puerto Rico might benefit from wind and solar. Kate, thanks very much for joining us. I enjoyed reading your article. Thank you for having me. Um, Could you tell us what's happening with energy and Puerto Rico right now? I know there's a lot of conversations about the grid, about privatizing the power company. Uh, Could you set the stage for us here? Yeah, there's certainly a lot going on. And the most general status update is that uh, there are uh, there is a concerted attempt to privatize Puerto Rico's electric grid, which has been a public utility, an island-wide public utility, um, since it was, it was founded. So something that's good to understand about kind of what's going on is just the sheer number of players that are involved and exactly what the future looks like from uh, from here isn't isn't totally clear just because there are so many people. So there's uh, PREPA itself, the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, which again is this island-wide public utility. Um, there is the governor's mansion in Puerto Rico. Uh, there's the legislature of Puerto Rico and differing opinions within there, that body uh, of what the future of this this utility should look like. There's the Fiscal Control Board, which effectively uh, has control over economic life on the island, including PREPA, and uh, was was appointed by Washington after the passage of the PROMESA bill in uh, 2016. And there's the House Natural Resources Committee, um, which we'll probably talk more about, which has uh, jurisdiction over uh, the Fiscal Control Board and and the sort of oversight over PROMESA. Um, And then there are creditors um, to uh, PREPA, which is about $9 billion in debt. That's part of the $74 billion of debt that the island is in overall. Uh, There is the Title III court process, which PROMESA set up. So there's a really sort of dizzying number of things. But um, the sort of core that a lot of uh, actors in Puerto Rico have seemed to coalesce around is that they want to bring um, at the very least large parts of this utility under private ownership. And uh, there are people specifically in Washington who are interested in uh, bringing much more natural gas into the picture. Now, you mentioned the House Natural Resources Committee, and it sounds like the chair of that committee is interested in bringing more natural gas to Puerto Rico. You, You had a previous story about him wanting to make it a hub. That's right. So, it's hard to tell at any given point uh, how much, how likely these things are, again, just because there's so many moving pieces in the scenario. But um, I was actually in Puerto Rico in May um, when he, uh, Rob Bishop, the chairman of the Natural Resources Committee um, from Utah, happened to be uh, holding a press conference in, in San Juan. Um, and I asked him, you know, what, uh, what role he thinks natural gas should play, a pretty anodyne question. Um, and he responded that he hoped that Puerto Rico could become uh, an energy hub for the entire uh, Caribbean. And so to break that down a little bit, that would mean essentially that uh, Puerto Rico, which has no uh, indigenous uh, natural uh, fossil fuels, there isn't gas to dig up, there isn't coal, um, would essentially open up uh, massive uh, amounts of, of fossil fuel infrastructure um, to bring in uh, natural gas at tremendous cost, um, and then use some of that on the island and then ship other uh, the rest of it out um, to other places in the Caribbean. Um, so most of the profits uh, would go toward uh, fossil fuel companies, uh, which are based either on the mainland or in different countries. Um, and uh, it's unlikely that much of that benefit would go um, to the island itself. 
One of the uh, interesting things about your article was that you mentioned how much money each congressperson who talked in the article got from the oil and gas industry. And um, Mr. Bishop there, Rob Bishop, the the chair, gets um, $452,866 from the oil and gas industry over the course of his career. That's right. Yeah. It's, I mean, once you once you kind of uh, f- look at those figures, it's not hard to figure out kind of where, where the motivation uh, is coming for this. In fact, when I was in uh, Puerto Rico and asked him this question about uh, about natural gas, I, I asked him if he was talking to um, natural gas companies, and he said yes. And I asked him to name uh, which ones, and he said, uh, "I'm I'm going to butcher the quote uh, exactly, but he said if I um, started naming them, you know, it would be like naming people who volunteer." on my campaign, uh, I'd be afraid I would offend one of them. So I'll just say I love them all. Um, so he's, he's really not shy um, about, about how, uh, how much he, he talks to the natural gas and, and the oil industry. I'm talking with Kate Aronoff, a contributor to The Intercept, about her article, House Republicans Deeply Confused About Why Puerto Rico Might Benefit from Wind and Solar. And so how this plays out when you have a, a committee hearing is pretty interesting. And we wanted to play a clip of the House Committee on Natural Resources Oversight Hearing on on Puerto Rico here that you, that you wrote about in the article. And uh, we're going to hear first from Representative Tom McClintock from California interrogating the Assistant Secretary of State uh, Bruce Walker. And he's from the Trump administration, and um, and he's arguing for fossil. F- I mean, he's arguing for renewable energy here. He's going to make the case for renewable energy. The the man from uh, the Trump administration. Here's um, Tom McClintock and Bruce Walker. We're hearing a lot about renewables, presumably wind and solar. Um, those are the most expensive ways of generating electricity that that we have available to us. Um, in a uh, system that is impoverished and in desperate need of, uh, of simple generation, particularly on an island favored by trade winds, uh, why aren't we pursuing much less expensive and much more reliable conventional electricity generation? Well, I, I think first off, your assertion that it's the most expensive generation would assume that perhaps you're sitting in Arizona paying 1.6 cents per kilowatt. However, when you're sitting in the middle of Puerto Rico paying 20-plus cents per kilowatt, uh, some of the cost-effectiveness of wind and solar actually become economical. Uh, so, again, you know, we've been working with Puerto Rico uh, with, with models that we use at our national labs, which are the most sophisticated in the world, that take into account things like marketplace drivers and actually cost of, of of, uh, you know, energy. So, you know, recognize that Puerto Rico relies on bunker fuel for the most part for their energy and or coal, uh, you know, hitting below those price points is uh, not that hard. And so there are strategic uses and well, economic why uses. Why are we making a simple economic? I mean, I, I don't have a dog in that fight. My, my, my sense of it is whatever is the cheapest way to produce electricity is the best way to proceed. That's Representative Tom McClintock from California talking with Assistant Energy Secretary Bruce Walker about energy use in Puerto Rico. I'm talking with Kate Aronoff from The Intercept about her article, House Republicans Deeply Confused About Why Puerto Rico Might Benefit from Wind and Solar. And there's um, Tom McClintock, who you point out in the article, gets $208,100 from oil and gas companies uh, including forty-one thousand from Occidental Petroleum, and he's he's arguing for 
uh, you know, he just can't seem to understand that that solar would cost uh, and wind would cost less. Right. And the title of the piece here is a little bit coy. They're not – it's not necessarily that um, they're just confused about um, the benefits of renewable energy. It's that they, you know, have a, politicians who take money from the fossil fuel industry um, have a very active interest in making sure um, that the people who give them that money uh, can continue to sell energy uh, in, in Puerto Rico and, and lots of it. Um, and yeah, it's a kind of amazing clip because as um, Secretary Walker um, from the Energy Department is alluding to, there are just certain physical realities about Puerto Rico which make it very difficult actually to have a centralized fossil fuel-based system. Uh, the, the main the main thing being that uh, much of the demand for electricity on the island uh, is centered around San Juan, the capital in the north. Much of the generation takes place in the south. And so the whole center, much of the center of the island um, is mountainous kind of rough terrain. And so uh, there are these uh, power lines which have to stretch uh, from nearly from the south to the north um, across the sort of center of the island, um, which makes it really vulnerable um, to uh, to any kind of disruption, particularly storms like Hurricane Maria last year. Uh, and so having decentralized power, power, as Walker goes on to say in that hearing, um, close to the site of demand for electricity uh, makes a certain amount of objective sense. And he's he's not a radical, you know, he's not saying that uh, that Puerto Rico should transition to 100% renewables tomorrow, although it could um, by um, mid-century, some experts say. Um, He's simply saying that uh, renewable energy makes objective sense and in in some cases makes more objective sense um, than bringing in uh, more fossil fuel infrastructure. And that really basic point, um, just simply that there should be more renewable fuel um, in in Puerto Rico to keep its electricity grid operating and to keep it from shutting down Consistently in the ways that it does, um, it, it, it just seems not to get through um, to many of these politicians um, through this through this hearing. And it's funny, you know, anybody who's been to Hawaii recently has seen a whole lot of solar power there because uh, they have the same issues. They're an island; their energy is really expensive, and it makes solar really cheap. So they've got a ton of it. And that was spurred essentially by the Hawaiian state legislature. And they were able to really give a lot of incentives and people and everybody responded. And this happened over the course of years. And now they've got lots of solar there. That's right. Yeah. And and it's not unheard of. I mean, a study from the uh, Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, which has um, done work on the island for years, has said that um, Puerto Rico could get 40 percent of its energy from renewables by 2028 uh, and as much as uh, 100 percent by 2040 or 2050. Uh, and and it's it's much cheaper. As you, as you mentioned, uh, island uh, power utilities are dependent on importing, um, importing and, and in some years, uh, PREPA the electric utility in Puerto Rico spends uh, as much as 60% of its budget uh, on uh, on just importing fuel. Uh, and there have been scandals in sort of how it gets that fuel and, and paying more than it even needed to. Um, and so this would, you know, cut out a lot of that. Uh, get, moving to more renewables would cut out um, some of that real corruption that's uh, taken place around fuel sourcing. I'm talking with Kate Aronoff about her article in The Intercept, House Republicans Deeply Confused About Why Puerto Rico might benefit from wind and solar. Coming up in a few minutes, we'll find out about the challenges that LGBTQ asylum seekers face. Um, I wanted to play another clip. Um, You know, I mentioned 
like Hawaii has a state legislature that really tried to spur renewables. And the Puerto Rican Senate minority leader was at this hearing, too. His name's Eduardo um, Batia, and he was arguing a bit uh, with uh, Representative Doug Lamafla from California on Puerto Rico's ability to uh, institute renewable energy, and it got down to to who controls the island, the territorial clause, and here's that clip. It's shameful, and I am a U.S. citizen. It is shameful to actually treat Puerto Rico as property of anyone, and I think citizens of Puerto Rico, we should we should legislate for Puerto Rico outside that whole concept of having the territorial clause. I know it may be the subject of a different hearing, but I think we should we, we all respect our fellow citizens down in Puerto Rico, and we're not giving them that respect, given the nature of the of the fiscal we board do and everything else. You coming in here arguing that is really not helping your case. I have a great respect for the people of Puerto Rico, and I want to see them pro- prosper. Sir, making that argument does not help other Americans. To I, I, I would just finish by saying, I would just finish by saying, if you had an oversight board, when you do the budget of the United States, if you had an oversight board coming from Russia or somewhere else or whatever it is, giving you and telling you what your budget should be, even though you approved one budget for the people of the United States, like I did three weeks ago, and having an oversight board basically saying, annulating that and saying, you're not, that budget will not go through, uh, we will tell you what your budget is. I think that's shameful for the United States. What happened to government of the people and by the people? What happened to democratic values? And that's why I think this, this whole uh, territorial issue is just should be addressed you, at Senator. some point. Thank you. Look, I'm from Utah. I understand what it's like for the federal government to control other property. And that's uh, Natural Resources Committee Chair Rob Bishop uh, quipping in there at the end again about um, how he understands how the federal government likes to control other property uh, because of the control of federal lands in Utah. Uh, I don't I don't know what to say about that, Kate Aronoff. Uh, what, do you, what do you say? Yeah, I mean, the clip really sort of speaks for itself and, and brings up, you know, the, the sort of underlying context for all of this, which is the fact that Puerto Rico really is a colony of the United States. There's not really another way to understand that that relationship. And so all of these fights over energy, um, all, all, all of the fights that have happened really um, post-Maria and before then um, through um, the, the long financial crisis that, that Puerto Rico has been experiencing, uh, a lot of them root back to the fact that uh, the, the island has not had real control over, over its finances, over its government um, for a long time. And it's a complicated situation. Obviously, there, there are a lot of factors at play. Um, but uh, it's, it's hard to understand really what's happening um, without understanding, you know, that the United States government has had, had control and there's been um, resistance to that um, on, on many, many fronts. Um, and I, I think, you know, we're seeing that in the power sector, seeing it in places like education. Um, and, you know, I think the sort of dripping condescension you hear from, uh, from, from the, the representatives in that clip uh, is, is really indicative of the way that the United States treats, um, treats Puerto Rico. And, and I, I hope uh, that, that it, it can, you know, drive more conversation um, about the need to have actual democracy um, in Puerto Rico, which has not existed um, for, for some time. But right now, if you were a betting person and you had all these Congress people who were um, unrepentant about their relationship with fossil fuels driving the policy agenda for Puerto Rico, you would probably bet that they are going to end up with uh, a lot more fossil fuel in their future and not end up getting uh, renewable energy that would, would make sense even according to the Department of Energy? Well, uh, 
it depends. There's been a, a strong um, resistance, like I said, um, to uh, natural gas infrastructure reliably on the island. Um, there was a 92-mile, uh, $45 million natural gas pipeline project that was defeated just a couple years ago, um, known as uh, Via de la Muerto, uh, death, death Route. Um, and so there has been a real push against um, bringing more fossil fuels onto the island precisely because uh, many people are aware um, both of the, the physical realities and difficulties of, of fossil fuels and are also interested in, in having um, a self-sufficient uh, energy, energy landscape in Puerto Rico that isn't um, dependent on uh, multinational fossil fuel companies or the United States government um, to, to bring, those, bring those fuels in. Uh, and so, you know, I think uh, I'm from talking to people, people there, uh, I'm hopeful that that uh, a good result can be can be achieved here. But um, that uh, scenario you described of of bringing more fossil fuels to the island is certainly what um, many many people in Washington are are hoping for. Kate Aronoff is a contributor to The Intercept. We've been talking about her article, House Republicans Deeply Confused About Why Puerto Rico Might Benefit from Wind and Solar. Kate is also a writing fellow at In These Times covering climate and American politics. Thanks for joining us, Kate. Thanks so much for having me. The U.S. was one of the first countries to extend asylum to LGBTQ people. We'll discuss how these asylum seekers fare in the Trump administration. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Amnesty International says around 76 countries criminalize homosexuality. Many other countries persecute LGBTQ people despite having laws to protect them. The U.S. was one of the first countries to grant asylum to people being persecuted for sexual orientation. But now the U.S. has tightened restrictions on all kinds of immigration. A panel discussion is taking place on Thursday night, if not us who... LGBTQI plus persecution under the lens, and it's happening at the Center on Halstead. We are going to talk with two of the participants in the panel discussion. And with us is Michael Jarecki. He is principal of the Chicago law firm Michael Jarecki. Um, they, they, they specialize in immigration and nationality law. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Could you give us a little... Um, overview of what might be happening now. There's been some concern and some editorials about um, people not getting asylum for for um, because of uh, gender orientation, sexual orientation these days. Is that um, is, are you seeing that in practice? So uh, the idea that somebody's uh, somebody could claim asylum based on a particular social group, which is uh, inclusive of the LGBT community, is good law still. Some of the challenges and barriers that we're seeing is the, someone's ability to claim asylum. Or if they're abroad and they're in, uh, trying to seek refugee status, getting the ability to work with the UN, get the appropriate credentialing, and whether or not there's even a number available to them in the United States to come. 
And when we talk about the abroad numbers, that is regulated by uh, the executive. So the Trump administration gets to control the number of refugees who could come into the United States, and they've kept it at historically very low numbers. Uh, when we're talking about asylum seekers, those are individuals who are lucky enough to have made it to the United States. So they're either within our borders and can claim it, or they've reached a border, an airport, a port of entry, and they say that they have a fear of returning to their home country. So those numbers are not limited in theory, right? The asylum seekers, there could be a million of them if they if wanted to. Correct. Um, but the challenge is how long it takes for the adjudication. Uh, and a lot of people wait and their lives are put on hold and they are in a period of insecurity for potentially years uh, and trying to figure out, are they going to be able to settle in the United States and get their protection and full protection of the U.S. government? Or are they going to face uh, the troubling reality of having to return to their home country where they face persecution based on their sexual orientation, gender identity, uh, or any other claims that they're, that they're, um, that they're asking for. So that uh, is something that I think I find uh, as a lawyer and somebody who puts on the legal overview, um, something that I have to bring in other professionals to work with my clients because there's a lot of anxiety wrapped up in knowing whether or not they're going to be able to stay in the United States or whether they have to think about finding a third country as a place that's going to be their home because some of them are adamant that they will never return to their home country. And the idea that it takes a really long time to process an asylum case uh, for people who are being persecuted because of their sexual orientation, this is not necessarily restricted to the Trump administration. This has been ongoing. It is ongoing. But um, I will say to the credit of the Trump administration, uh, in January 2018, uh, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services did change their policy to say, as of January 2018, any new asylum application filed affirmatively will be uh, given preference. Uh, so that's great in terms of people who want their case to be adjudicated quickly, but that means that all cases that were pending before January 2018 are on sort of a permanent hold and may not get a quick adjudication anymore. So somebody, and I have clients who've been pending since 2014, 2015, wow. They're on hold, but people who now file as of today will get an interview potentially in two months, and their case will be adjudicated. And if it's approved, great, they're done. But if it's not approved, then they're referred to immigration court, which is a whole other government entity, and they have to restart their case, tell their story again, and that may take another two to four years. All right. <laughs> so, so did things get better there, or did things get worse? It definitely got better if you have a strong case. So if you have a strong case and you're able to file today and you can get a resolution to your case, that's absolutely better. It's a quicker uh, access to the benefits of an asylee in the United States. Uh, but if your case, for whatever reason, uh, and one of the issues that I want to talk about that affect all uh, asylum seekers in the United States and is particularly harsh to the LGBT community is the one-year filing deadline. The one-year filing deadline is a 1996 law that says anyone who enters the United States must file their asylum application within one year of arrival. There are a couple of exceptions to that, but what does that say for the LGBT community? That means that somebody needs to come out within one year of arriving the, to the United States. That means uh, that person must trust a government that they don't know and file an asylum claim, even though they may have, a f they may have fled a country that has state-sponsored harm or criminal laws against LGBT individuals. Others have to overcome different psychological, emotional, or mental barriers to be able to file. And then, of course, there's just the 
finding out about asylum? And is that a legal avenue for somebody uh, to pursue? And of course, ignorance of the law does not, is not an exception that allows somebody to file after the one-year filing deadline. I'm talking with Michael Jarecki. He's an immigration lawyer, a lawyer, and we're talking about getting asylum for people who are being persecuted for sexual orientation. And we have a good example of what you're talking about here. Um, Gabrielle is with us. She is a trans uh, asylum seeker from Ecuador originally. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Can you explain your case? Because um, the whole idea about one year of arrival um, and declaring uh, what, what is going on and seeking asylum within one year, it sounds like that would have been really difficult for you. It was really difficult, especially because as a transgender person, as a transgender woman, it's not something that you discover right away. It's not something that you discover within a year. I actually had to dress and cut my hair to be able to to come here with my passport that said that I'm a male. Uh, so it was like a learning experience for me. So I didn't know. You and know? you came here originally as a student? Yeah, I came as a student. I already knew back in my country I had to, like, get out somehow, and I knew through education I can, like, explore other places safer. And um, how long did your case take when you started to begin the process? Can you give us a little timeline of that? Yeah, well, at first I didn't know I could apply to asylum because uh, the conditions of my country made me be a little bit scared of authorities towards, like, uh, transgender people or gay people. I didn't know like people really cared about <laughs> us, to be honest. Uh, but so, so right there, that's a problem if you've got only a year to arrival and you don't know that yes. you can declare. I mean, that would Correct. be that uh, would mm-hmm. be. Yeah, by uh, by the time that I apply was like 2013, and um, and then it took like actually like to, to like May last year. What that's when I actually have my opportunity to have an interview. So it took like five years for me to have an interview, four or five years. That's an enormous amount of time. Uh, what, what kind of, what does, what's your status in between? Are you just kind of in, in a limbo status? You're in a limbo. And then like, I always thought that education was part of like getting a better life. And I wasn't able to get that. And you really, uh, you know, I, I was afraid that I wasn't able to like live here, so I couldn't continue with my life normally. I was anxious about it. Um, From what I understand of your case, it sounds like you would have a, a pretty good slam dunk case in today's version of um, of what happens. Uh, could you tell us a little about what was going on in Ecuador, what happened to your friends in Ecuador, and why it was important for you to get asylum? Yes. Um, well, Ecuador and in, in Ecuador was illegal to be gay until 1997. So, like back then, I didn't know what was being, you know, transgender. So I thought I was like just a um, gay male. <laughs> and then I have a lot of bad situations, like authorities, teachers. My family was Christian, so I couldn't really, um, you know, be myself. I was like afraid to be who I really am. But growing up, I knew that, like, perhaps I had to explore other other places. Um, one of the things that made me move here was uh, when I was going to school, uh, I would face a lot of discrimination from my uh, teachers. Uh, I would face discrimination from the police as well. Uh, I remember dressing up with my friends, you know, the times that we could dress up as girls and be ourselves and 
be happy. And then we got arrested for being dressing up in public. They told us that we were disturbing the, the public. And they hit us and they put us in jail. And then they put us we criminals and they actually, like, hurt us, they raped us. And then that was one of the things that, like, actually, like, made me decide to just leave, do anything to just find a safe place to live. And what happened to most of your friends? Um, from the group of people that I grew up, we were, like, around 15, 17 kids, like, that we knew, you know, what was going on with us. Um, only, like, three of us, like, we keep in touch and, and that I know that we are alive and we're outside the country. Anybody that stays in my country is either, like, dead or got into jail, was denial, like, health, uh, you know, uh, any sort of, like, health, public help, and then you end up dead. It's like a death sentence. Gabrielle is a trans asylum seeker who successfully won her case here in the United States after years of trying. She is one of the panel members uh, on the discussion that's happen- taking place on Thursday night. If not us, who? LGBTQI plus persecution under the lens happening at the center on Halstead. Um, Michael, wh- now, Gabrielle's case, it's, um, w- is this a slam dunk in, in the current law? That would, when, after two months, do you think that this would be something that would... Uh, fit into the category of uh, in two months you get a decision, or would this get passed on? Um, this would this was and uh, would continue to be a very difficult case because she filed outside of the one year filing deadline. So it was the onus was on her to show that there were uh, exceptions uh, that would fit the law. Uh, that were exceptional exceptional enough or that there were changed personal personal circumstances that would allow her to um, show that there's a waiver or an exception to that one-year filing deadline. Uh, and I have some statistics from the Chicago Asylum Office uh, that shows that uh, at least um, of the referrals, meaning uh, cases that they sent to the immigration court uh, in recent history uh, this year, there were 14 uh, 1,463 cases that were referred. Uh, 680 of them were referred just because of the one-year filing deadline. So that means those cases might be meritorious as to uh, the fact that they may have uh, faced persecution in their home country or they may continue to face persecution if they go back. But the asylum office said, we can't even decide the merits of your case because you didn't file within the one-year filing deadline and you don't have an exception. So it's a, it's a high bar. So the one-year filing deadline is knocking out more than half of the asylum cases right off the bat. Exactly. And then putting them on a pipeline directly to immigration court, it, at which point they could ask for asylum there and try to argue an exception or ask for a lesser benefit uh, from asylum, which is called withholding of removal, which the government would say, okay, we don't think you can get the full benefit of asylum, but we're going to let you stay in the United States uh, and give you sanctuary, but you can never leave. Uh, And we're going to, in effect, put an order of deportation, but we're not going to send you back. Uh, And those individuals could stay and potentially uh, receive a work authorization card, but they're then stuck. They could never advance their case to become a permanent resident of the United States or a U.S. citizen of the United States. They're just getting protection because of this one-year filing deadline law. That is a really unusual crevice of legality to fall into. It's almost like being stateless. Yes. Which is worse. Yes. Well, if you could, who, who gets to change the one-year uh, filing deadline rule? If you, if that is a if that's the big problem here, how does that get changed? Congress. 
it's codified in the statute, uh, and it would have to be changed by an act of Congress signed by the president. Uh, I know that Representative Mike Quigley is going to be at your event on Thursday night. Is there a constituency that would like to see this happen? Absolutely. In the uh, immigration community uh, and those working with asylum seekers, those working in immigration court, uh, this has been a number one issue uh, to try to address. Uh, But from the government's perspective, and if you take the perspective that people are abusing the asylum uh, process, they want to see people file as quickly as possible because they think if somebody's here for a very long time and they can just use asylum as a last grasp to stay in the United States, people will abuse the system. But as you can see, it also hurts people who have legitimate claims. Michael Jarecki is an immigration lawyer. Gabrielle is a trans asylum seeker who successfully got her case through. And they'll both be taking part in the discussion Thursday night, if not us who... Uh, LGBTQI persecution under the lens. It's happening at the center on Halstead. There is a Facebook page for the event. And thank you both for joining us and talking about the situation facing uh, people who are being persecuted for their sexual orientation. Thank you. Thank you. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk a bit about uh, an issue that has to do with Hawaii. There's an indigenous Hawaiian restaurant owner that claims receiving a cease and desist letter to stop using the words aloha and pokey. And uh, other uh, Hawaiian restaurants have changed their names as the owner of the Chicago-based Aloha Pokey Company denies issuing the gag order but says they're defending their trademark. And this morning there were protesters marching on Aloha Pokey and more planned actions. And tomorrow on Worldview we'll talk about cultural appropriation and some of the protesters. So come back for that tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Viviana Garcia-Blanco and Shazmin Hussein for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview from WBEZ.